We continued the discussion today on that stabbing at Olive Garden last week involving a young woman. And of course, it's horrific for her. Her life could potentially be changed forever. But what if you're just a witness or a bystander? Today we learned about the psychology and sociology behind witnessing such a violent crime. We also talked today about a rise in calls to the Poison Center about kids and melatonin. What do parents need to know? We got a weird situation happening with one of our listeners and his credit card. He lost his credit card, got it replaced, went to buy something online, and they already had his new credit card number. Lots of big things in sports. Bombers win on Friday, and Winnipeg-born Nick Taylor won the Canadian Open in legendary fashion. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Monday, June 12th podcast for The Start. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb on your Monday. We have a lot of cool things. Well, mostly cool, some not so cool things from sports to discuss in a moment. We got lots of giveaways today to tell you about and some announcements. Uh, but we want to just start, I think, by resetting the discussion because we'll be delving into this more deeply today. And that has to do with last week's stabbing at Olive Garden. Here's the thing, you know, when we heard about it coming down on Friday, this idea that someone had been stabbed while at work, you think to yourself, you think through all the scenarios, what, what can make, me, make this palatable? And the answer is none of, none of it, but it seemed like it just got worse, Greg. There's nothing good about anyone being stabbed at any time. Then you throw in the equation of it, it's a server at work. Then you listen to the news conference and you hear that there's this guy who sits down to have a meal, sits there for an hour, and then just gets up unprovoked, starts stabbing someone. And then you add on to that that he was on probation after an arson charge a few years ago. It just it got layer after layer worse and worse for me. Uh, multiple arson charges and uh, three counts of uh, disregard for human life in those charges as well, going back to May of 2020. So, yeah, this individual has obviously had their issues and their interactions with police. And when you see th- those charges for disregard for human life, just had me shaking my head as to how this individual is out on the street to three years later. And so the discussion I think that we're going to have this morning is, is twofold. The, the, the idea of going out in public in a situation, in a packed restaurant like that, that's a, one of the busier restaurants in the city per square foot. I guarantee you that. I guarantee that that restaurant was essentially full when this went down. And the idea of, of where do you feel safe and the idea of being a witness to a crime like that and how does it impact your psyche? How does it impact the way you feel, not only about your own safety, but about where you live, Brett? We'll have more on that at 735, the impact of being a witness or a bystander to crime. And we'll be discussing this throughout the day today on 680 CJOB. On the sports front, Greg, do you want to start with the good or the bad? Let's start with the good, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Uh, Despite some hiccups and Camp Poitras calling it maybe a season's worth of follies in uh, the (laughs) third and fourth quarter for the Blue Bombers, uh, they jumped out to a commanding lead early in the third quarter. Hamilton got some incredibly good bounces. We'll catch up with Derek Taylor at 835, play some of those highlights for you and ask Derek, you know, the Blue Bombers, six turnovers, but their offense... 
my goodness, they were dominant. They came out all guns blazing on Friday night. And what they managed to do to Hamilton Tiger Cats in the first quarter, they had the ball for 11 minutes, 42 seconds of the 15 minutes. Zach Caleros was 9 of 11 for 189 yards and three touchdowns. That was in the first quarter. And that's when that's including Nick Dembski fumbling the ball on the very first play, offensive play of the season. They managed to do that against Hamilton. So just how good is this team? And how is it that they they managed to uh, make it interesting? Because it certainly shouldn't have been interesting based on uh, the way things had gone through about 37 minutes of that uh, of that game on Friday night. There was a little touch and go there in that second half. <laughs> it was crazy. Hamilton got to within eight points. Question of the day, by the way, that we asked on Friday morning for Mr. Furness. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furness at 204-832-6243. Some are calling tonight's game between the Blue Bombers and Tiger Cats. A preview of the Grey Cup final. What say you? 15% said Bombers will make it. Not sure about the Tiger Cats. 8% said yes, they will both be in the final. And 76% said slow down. It is the first <laughs> game. That's no fun. No fun to answer. Slow down. You got to go all in, like right off the hop. Like, this is it. We're going all the way. You know, and then you temper it afterwards. At this point, the Blue Bombers would take that matchup <laughs> yeah. six times out of six. Yeah, they dominated them for the most part. Also yesterday, it's very rare where all three of us happen to be in our homes watching golf at the same time. But there we were. Canadian Open took place yesterday in Toronto at Oakdale. And a Canadian was in the mix. I started watching the day because Rory McIlroy, who is the two-time defending champion, was he said he was going for a three-peat. And he's one of my favorites, and he's one of everybody's favorites. So I, I watched, tuned in to see how he would do. But it turns out that it was a Canadian, Greg, who made the big dramatic, had the big dramatic day. And his birth certificate, Brad? Born in Winnipeg, he hails from Abbotsford. <laughs> I've gotten slapped on the wrist but for that, for describing him as Winnipeg-born and not highlighting the fact that he's from Abbotsford. I don't care, and it's in his bio on the PGA's website, or at least one of the websites I've looked at. It says his birthplace is Winnipeg. So That's right, Nick Taylor. Go. And I only happened to be tuned in totally by accident. I had turned on the TV to actually tune into and watch Saskatchewan playing at Edmonton in the CFL. That game started at 6 o'clock, but I have a reminder every Sunday that pops up that my kids hate to remind me to put on 60 minutes. So I said, Oh yeah, you know what? I'll see what's on 60 minutes before the football game gets underway. And then there's golf still happening and they're in a playoff and there's Nick Taylor in the playoff for the Canadian open. So that was good enough for me. I stuck around and I watched and what he did with that 72 foot putt Loren was pure magic. Yeah. I said to you, I don't want to run that far, let alone attempt to, putt like that so he becomes the first Canadian in 69 years to win the open I didn't realize it had been that long that 72 eagle foot eagle putt was just insane his uh I only really watched the end and then I caught the highlights later and couldn't believe sort of just as he was uh going in in the last round and then of course into the playoff just how like he had that look on his face like something about it maybe it's in retrospect you see it but that look on his face like he meant business he was really in the zone and I just want to point out uh, Brett that there are two stations one in Saskatoon and one in Pittsburgh that are saying Winnipeg's Nick Taylor wins <laughs> the Canadian so the Winnipeg 
the Pittsburgh pa- the Pittsburgh paper has him hailing from Winnipeg. So there to whoever yelled at you years ago. <laughs> so good for Nick Taylor for and that was the fourth playoff hole. Like and they were playing in pouring rain for those last few playoff holes. You couldn't you couldn't quite see it on TV, but it was raining pretty hard. But right now we want to return to what we opened the show with. And that's that a suspect is in custody after that stabbing inside the Olive Garden in Transcona on Thursday night. That suspect is Robert Allen Ingram. While he's known to police, police say there's no evidence indicating the victim, an 18-year-old employee at the restaurant, had any sort of lengthy interaction with the accused. We'll have more on him in a moment. First, here's Global's Catherine Dornian with what happened around 7 p.m., Thursday night. The woman is now in stable condition, but the reason for the attack is unknown. Police say the two did not know each other and believe the stabbing was completely random and unprovoked. Police say the 27-year-old suspect went into the restaurant as a customer at 7 p.m. and stayed for an hour. He then attacked the victim with a knife he had brought with him and fled the scene. Several Good Samaritans gave first aid to the victim before she was taken to hospital. Constable Claude Chancy says an incident in a family restaurant during a busy time of day is troubling. We've got the young lady that was injured, uh, could have been fatally injured actually as a result of these stabbings, uh, witnessed by many patrons, uh, including staff. Uh, this will affect a lot of people for uh, a, long, a long time. Officers found the suspect a few blocks away and arrested him after a brief struggle. Robert Ingram is facing charges for aggravated assault and possession of a weapon. He remains in custody. Police Chief Danny Smythe says random attacks like this are the minority. This is still pretty rare to have attacks like that in, in a restaurant. It's not unprecedented, but it's rare. Uh, you know, Our major crimes unit is currently working on it. In a statement, Olive Garden saying the woman is expected to make a full recovery. The restaurant did open for regular hours today. Catherine Dornian, Global News. So we mentioned Ingram is known to police. Well, in 2021, he ple- pleaded guilty to 15 counts of arson after he was charged in a string of fires, including one on the St. Boniface Hospital grounds back in May of 2020. In that sentence, there was a mandatory 10 years weapons prohibition. And then last year, court records show he was convicted of failing to comply with the orders of or under his probation. And so prior to the fires, the accused was also convicted of mischief. There was theft. There was failing to comply with probation orders the first time around and then the second time around. And so there's a conversation about those probation orders and, and the idea of having a weapons ban. I mean, Clearly, that kind of ban doesn't have any impact if this is true, if the accused came to the restaurant with a knife. And I guess unless someone is searched on a regular basis, let's be honest, that's just a piece of paper. I don't know how much teeth a ban like that can have. Uh, so there's all sorts of conversations about someone with priors and what to do with that and, and the courts. But then there's the idea this was 7 p.m., right? Like supper hour. The Olive Garden in Transcona. I mean, of all the places to go with an expectation of safety, I would say this is it, both as a customer and as a staff member. No parent is sending their 18-year-old to work there thinking they're going to be the victim of a violent crime or the witness of a violent crime. So in our next hour, we're going to talk to a professor of psychology and criminology about what witnesses go through, Greg and Brett. But just all of this has so many angering points because there's what the accused, there's his priors, there's the location that this happened and then there's just everybody who has to go through seeing this you heard the police there saying like this is going to have an impact for a long long time i i was just stunned at this news friday and remain so today 
So, Loren, a couple things there. Uh, records show that he was convicted of failing to comply with a probation order. That had to do with a weapon last year? I don't have any more information on that. Okay. I just know that he was convicted of failing to comply with the probation order. So that could be maybe he had a curfew. It could be the weapons ban. It could be I don't know. Okay. So then he went. You go back to jail for that. Prior to that, though, he had been so he he, he years ago was accused of mischief, theft, failing to comply with p- probation orders. Goes to jail, comes out, commits arson, goes to jail, comes out with a probation order. Has this go down? I don't know what else might have been. In I the okay. Order. I guess so. This is a roundabout way of suggesting that someone. W- breaks their probation order why isn't the original sentence instilled why is he then not going back to jail to to send you know uh, on new charges clearly can't ha- can't handle this 10 year weapons pro- prohibition so what are the consequences of failing to comply with that and that's maybe one of the questions uh, I'll be digging into today to find out exactly what are the consequences? Because in this case, there seems to be none in terms of, uh, you know, failing to comply with probation orders, whatever they might be, whether there were weapons involved or whether he was supposed to be somewhere at a certain time or other conditions attached to that probation. And I haven't said this on the air, but my kid applied for a job at that very restaurant, had an interview there 14 days ago. So if you don't think we were looking around at each other over the weekend on Thursday and going, wow, like that could have been a life-altering, life-changing event. And so my heart goes out to anyone who was in that building, anybody who works there. The idea of sending your kids off to work, anybody, any loved one. We talk about this with regards in the construction industry, those that are working on the sides of roads and emergency response, all these different places where you can go where there is an inherent risk to doing your job. Well, on the list of things that I had to consider when I worked in a restaurant, I'd have to say, near the bottom, at the bottom, or maybe not on my list at all, was the concern that I might have to worry about somebody coming in and physically attacking me and stabbing me while I was serving tables. And I did that for a very long time, Brett. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Right now, we want to tell you how you can win yourself some tickets for the Winnipeg Sea Bears versus the Saskatchewan Rattlers at Canada Life Centre on June 23rd. We, have, By the way, they're back in action tonight at Canada Life Centre. But this has to do, we wanted to ask you about reunions, reunion parties, whether they're good or bad or maybe a little bit of both, because I kind of went through that over the weekend. I got together with some friends. It was a reunion, little reunion, reunion party in someone's backyard. 25 years since we all started work at the same job some 25 years ago. I can't believe that it's been that long. We worked uh, through a call set in a call center together for several years and uh, it was great. It was wonderful to see a couple of dozen people I haven't seen in years and to just sort of slide back in and share some laughs and share some memories was great. But something weird happened to me when I got in there and I don't know if this continues to be pandemic fallout. We've talked a lot about, pandemic-related anxiety and the inability to deal with certain social situations or or what. And uh, because for me, I was alone in this room for much of the pandemic. I live alone. I don't even have a pet, so I spent most of my time alone. So I think I'm still dealing with certain uh, new situ- situations that feel brand new again. And to just walk in to a room 
full of people I haven't seen in five years all at once was great, but it was just, I didn't know which way do I turn? Do I talk to this person? Do I talk to that person? When one person was talking to me, I felt like, should I be talking? I don't know. I just, I was overwhelmed. I was totally overwhelmed, and I'm sure I looked and acted like a basket case, but I still had fun. It was a great time. It was great to see them. I hope it doesn't take another five years. Yeah, I hope you get that sorted out because you're you're too social a person to be in a social situation like this to be, you know, dealing with that. Yikes. Just internal. It was like an anxiety bomb exploded. But good to see these people at the end of the day. It was great. I want to see them again much sooner than five years. So we want to know from you reunion parties. Good, bad, maybe a little bit of both for a chance to win tickets to see the Sea Bears on June 23rd. Cameron Portress, why don't we start with you, sir? Well, I, I kind of had a very similar situation. It was before the pandemic. Um, there was sort of a social, uh, some some people that I went to high school with were getting married. And it was like, right, we're in the area that I grew up. And I was very excited about it. You know, was was going to go uh, see a bunch of people I went to high school with and stuff like that. And then I went and I just hung out with the people that I went there with. And I barely said hi to anybody. So I don't know what's <laughs> wrong with me. Like is the anxiety because like you're like, did do do I look good now? Do I look better than I did back in high school? I don't know. Like, no, it's I don't know. It's that's where it, my anxiety comes from. <laughs> or like I well, look at someone's like, wow, life was not good to you, was it? <laughs> no, I I I don't know. It's just like I I just I don't know. Maybe so I don't want to bother anybody. I don't know. It's something like that. Um, but I don't know. Yes. I, don't, just, I don't know what you looked like in high school, Forche, but you look like Michael Bublé now. So I can't imagine anybody looking at you and going, <laughs> oh, yeah, it hasn't aged well at all. I went to high school with Jeffrey, and he looks exactly the same as you did in high school. There's <laughs> I no am not difference. aged. I'm not aged. Not whatsoever. Okay. Little baby Forche. Sarah McCarthy, what about you? I have not been to a reunion yet, but I am very much looking forward to when my college class gets together, hopefully in five years. So that would be just a couple of years from now. Um, it's just so difficult to coordinate when you have people in this business. Like I know people in Burnaby, I know people in Halifax. So it's just a matter of getting all those details sorted. But I would look forward to it. I think it would be fun. We were well, all the, very close. so. Well, the good thing is maybe maybe they'll, they'll come to the middle and you won't have to go exactly. anywhere. Exactly. Center of Canada come I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and Burnaby, Halifax, yeah. we got the whole, all mm-hmm. corners covered. Uh, Loren, what about you? I just had a fabulous reunion uh, just three weeks ago. I was down in Guelph for a wedding, and my one of my close girlfriends from university lives in Waterloo, and we we lived together for years, both in university, after university. She, got, she worked at the Winnipeg Free Press for several years, and so we lived in Winnipeg together. We spent thousands of hours together but we actually haven't seen each other in eight years at least I think you know we text often we talk on the phone but we haven't connected in person and so as I was driving to her house to see her house for the first time ever and meet her kids for the first time ever I had that moment of like what if we don't like each other anymore and now we're just gonna go out for lunch and hang out together for a whole afternoon and stare at one another it was very much like like a anticipation of a date or someone that you like a long lost love what if the connection's not there and man i'll tell you as soon as i walked into the room and we hugged and i looked at her i just wanted to like link my arms with her and skip down the street street it was so great to finally see her again but there was that moment of huh like you know your best friends at a certain time and people change. And so doesn't mean you're going to be best friends 25 years later, right? Good point. Did you end up skipping? 
No, we didn't skip, but we had a great lunch and a glass of rosé. And I honestly wish I had carved out more time. It was just such a whirlwind of a trip, but it was just, it was just a really special thing to see. And, and uh, there's some people in your life that you know that you can connect with after great lengths of time and maybe not even talk to them for great lengths of time. And it's, you're going to just get back to right where you started. And then there's sometimes you don't know if you're going to still have that connection. And it was great to find out that we still did. Mackling, what about you? Well, um, one of my best friends on the planet uh, lives in Vernon, BC. I moved to Vernon back in 1994. We become we became best friends in uh, spring of 95, and we've been really been best friends ever since. We haven't seen each other face to face in seven years, and he's coming here in July. We've had a few false starts since we got together. The last time in BC, we were supposed to meet in Seattle. We were supposed to meet in California. He was supposed to, anyway, pandemic and uh, passage of time. And so, yeah, I'm just over a month away from seeing my buddy for the first time in seven years. And I'm kind of emotional just thinking about it. Uh, we, we speak on the phone just about every day or text at the very least. So I'm not concerned that we're not still friends. We have a lot of the same values, but I, I just, I, I can't wait to see him. Seven years. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like we used to spend like ever, all, we worked together. We all, the adventures we've had together are absolutely uh, incredible. And to imagine that's been that long since I've seen him is, is mind boggling when I say it out loud. I'd be curious to know about certain reunion parties where you just where you'd either don't want to go simply because you don't like these people, but maybe yeah. do I go out of sense and obligation? Yeah. Do I go for spite? Yeah, like to show up to just to pick fights with Look all these me. jerks. <laughs> well, not I mean, I wouldn't be in that. I wouldn't be that person. But yeah, uh, just 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 avoid the whole situation. Um, <laughs> There's a, there is, there is a, it, de- it really depends on the kind of mood I'm in. If, if that were the case, there is a part of me that would probably want to go just to mess with people. How? It's a small, dark side of me. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, or, or maybe you just say you're somebody else altogether. Find out somebody that isn't going and just pretend to be them. Well, you like, changed. Boy, boy, you changed a lot. You were kind of short in high yeah, school. Just, yeah, you, you grew like... <laughs> A foot and a half. What happened? <laughs> I don't know. It feels to me as though more people dread the idea of the high school reunion as, you know, for a prime example, as opposed to, I can't wait until my 20th. Yeah. I, high just, school reunion. I, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say that. I can't wait for my high school reunion. I, I guess I'm kind of weirdly shy. You know, in a, in a way, which kind of seems ridiculous for somebody who's on on the radio and stuff like that. But like when it comes to like in person stuff, I I don't know. I tend to like think I'm bothering somebody if I go up same and here. say hi. Yeah, to same totally same here. I think that's probably why my anxiety exploded because there were all these people I wanted to talk to and who also wanted to speak to me, but I just, I it was just it was too much. Almost it was just yeah. the sensory overload and my. my uh, my isolated brain just couldn't quite handle it. But it was still fun. Still super fun. So your reunion stories, 204-780-6868. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb coming up after Global News at 7.30. We're going to talk about the impact of being a witness or a bystander to a crime like that stabbing that happened at Olive Garden last week. In our next segment, we have our Dauphin country fest code of the day so wait for that and then you'll be queued to go to cjob.com to enter that code and we want to tell you about something really weird involving one of our listeners credit cards in a moment but first 
We got a really cool show announcement for Winnipeg. When I saw this, I thought, wow, I didn't even know that was a thing. But like we just had the Tony Awards on TV last night. So I think it's apropos that this show is a live stage production. It is Dogman, the musical. It's based on the super popular series of books for young people. Friday, November 10th at the Centennial Concert Hall. We will have tickets to give away tomorrow through Friday. And there will be a pre-sale. We'll have those details for you soon. But, uh, Loren, I'm guessing with the, the, the ages your boys are at that you've probably had Dogman books in your home, yes? Oh, yeah, we've had them. Uh, it was a few years ago that they were really into them. And I have to – so it's like a graphic novel, uh, kind of like Captain Underpants or other. And it, um, I have no clue what it's about. Like, I've tried to read them and have been so confused as to what <laughs> is going on in these Dogman series. It's for kids, and they're they're really kind of off the wall, and I would say weird. But the kids love them. And so I'm curious how this gets turned into a musical. I'd take them to see this. I think they're a little – my oldest for sure is out of this phase, but the youngest might still be into it. And Captain, because Dogman's a spinoff of Dogman is he's a he's a police officer. With, yes. Who just happens to of say, course he's a dog, but he's a cop. <laughs> Dogman, but uh, he's a spinoff from Captain Underpants. Okay, so your boys are probably too old for Dogman, but Captain Underpants. Perhaps Captain Underpants. Absolutely, we have all those books in our house, unless we've passed them. We've probably passed them down to uh, some of our friends that have uh, kids that would be a little more interested than my boys at 16 would be interested in them. But uh, yeah, this sounds like a ton of fun. So if you, it's, I think it's one of those things, if you know, you know. We'll have tickets to give away Tuesday through Friday right here on The Start. Now with a question for you, do you ever stop to think about what sort of information is being gathered, stored, or shared when you use your credit card? Our next guest has us asking that question because he shared a recent experience with his new credit card and his experience came to us in a text. But instead of reading that to you, we asked Larry Weeb to join us this morning and share his story himself. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. How are you? We're good. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time because it had all of us scratching our heads when you told us about this. Let's go back. You lost your MasterCard, ordered a new one. And then what happened? (laughs) I ordered a new one and... um... Prior to me getting it in the mail, um, it was June the 4th, I went on the Amazon website to order something else. And in the method of payment uh, section, a new credit card appeared. It had my name and it had four, uh, the last four numbers were different, Um, but I had never seen it before. Then the next day, I actually got my new credit card in the mail. And um, it was that same credit card that was on the Amazon website. So Amazon had my credit card number before I did. Oh, my word. That, how did you feel when you saw that? <laughs> well, it's a little unnerving, honestly. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, different information is shared, but I had no idea that, um, you know, a vendor could actually have my number before I did. Did they have the three-digit number, too, and the expiry date, or was it just the number that they had, Larry? They just had the number. I did have to input my um, expiry date and uh, the security code number in order to actually use it. But I did call uh, BMO MasterCard and spoke to someone and, of course, had to go through a few people before I got to a supervisor. And his explanation was is that... um, a number of selected vendors have access to um, replacement card information. Did they explain why? (laughs) No, they did not say why. 
you know, I could maybe understand if, if it was a recurring payment that I had, but this is like a one time off every time uh, I use my card, I have to at, on a, Amazon that I have to input that information. You know, when I when I hear this, Larry, like, so yes, you still had to go in and add that extra information before your car could get used. But they, on the other hand, they still had some of your data. And so it, it it's, tells me that they share that information. Um, with, maybe we're supposed to know that. Maybe that was in the fine print somewhere <laughs> when we signed up for the credit card. But up until that point, did you have any sense that that's how that works with credit cards? I had no sense of that at all. I asked uh, the person on uh, MasterCard uh, who else they had shared my information with. And his, uh, his answer was, we don't share information with anyone. <laughs> it was just a matter of semantics that they give them access to it, but they don't actually share it to. Well, we have another listener saying that happened with my new visa and Amazon. I went to update my card last week and the card number was already there. So, so have you spoken to any of, you know, people in your circle? Have you, has anybody else said, yeah, you've, I've had that happen too, Larry. Yeah, no, I've not had anyone that has uh, told me that. Everyone is very surprised when I tell them that story. They just can't understand how that can possibly be. There's all sorts of information, you know, protect your, you know, your credit card and, and your pin and all that sort of thing. But, um, obviously, um, in the background, there's more going on than uh, one probably realizes. Larry Weeb, thank you very much for bringing this to our attention, and thanks for listening to CJOB. We appreciate this, sir. Have a great day. And then, Ryan, we're going to continue this uh, just after 9 o'clock. We're going to speak with one of our friends who is an expert on technology and security. Yeah, and so we just want to get into what is shared or what isn't shared or what agreements are in place and what can we do to protect ourselves. And so, again, you know, the, 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 you still have to enter your CVV, the three-digit security code, and your expiry, but they have your card number. And so some information is being passed along. How much? That's our question for Ritesh Kotak just after nine. I mean, it's convenient and all when they have your number all stored, I, I, I but guess, this I is across know. the line. It feels uncomfortable to me. I, I don't yep. care that I still have to enter those other numbers. It's up to me. And I suppose they could argue that, okay, they pass on that number because you might have recurring payments, right? With your cable eh. or other, but not eh. with Amazon. I don't have recurring payments with Amazon, right? I have to click to order it. So I, that just leaves me feeling a bit icky. Right now we want to talk about a Winnipeg police Say what happened at an Olive Garden last week is very rare. A random, unprovoked stabbing of a staff member who they say had minimal interaction with the suspect before the attack. Yeah, this uh, suspect was sitting there, had a meal, sat there for about an hour, according to police, before the stabbing uh, occurred. And the victim is 18 and physically, please say, she'll recover. But the, the mental anguish of this crime will linger for her, for her co-workers, for her family, really for anyone in that restaurant. It's a, a, a known establishment. It's very well frequented by patrons uh, of all ages. Uh, we're looking at uh, around 7 o'clock in the evening to 8 o'clock at night. Uh, it's frequented by many, many people that would have witnessed this. So uh, this is a rare occurrence in, in, in that case. Uh, very random and uh, very traumatic for anybody who may have experienced that. That was Constable Claude Chouncey talking about the fact many people would have witnessed this stabbing. 
Just one of many crimes in our city and province that will leave scars for days, weeks, and years. Karen Weiss is a professor, Department of Sociology and Anthropology at West Virginia University. Thank you for taking some time with us, Professor. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So watching anyone get hurt can be painful, but when it's a shocking, brazen attack in a public place such as this, what sort of impact can that have on the people who, who simply witness it? Well, you know, amazingly, there hasn't been all that much research specifically on impacts other than really mass violence, such as what a lot of times, unfortunately, is what's happening in the United States. But what we do know is that it can really range. It it could be as devastating as as a lingering uh, PTSD. It can a lot of people will just rationalize it and kind of go about their business. So it kind of. It ranges in terms of emotions, but uh, it's, I mean, it's definitely uh, hard to, it, it's, um, you know, something that that we often refer to as an indirect victimization that a lot of times people don't talk about. So I'm actually interested, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're bringing that up because witnesses really are indirectly victimized in a lot of ways. Yeah, when I think about it, uh, Karen, you know, there's the idea that you see something horrible happen in front of you. You might even think about how you could have, should have reacted. And I want to get into mm-hmm. that in a moment about, you know, what we've learned about the way people react. But when you talk about just the post-traumatic stress of it, even if it's minor, it might just, it, it could it could last for days or weeks. But it also just, I feel like it would leave this sense of uncertainty now because of all the places I go to I'd said earlier this morning then Olive Garden is just it's so innocuous I wouldn't expect that kind of thing to happen and so now I'm even just wondering what what sort of impact it could have on my feelings of safety overall not just the trauma of witnessing it but just thinking to myself well now I don't want to go out there I don't want to put myself out there because of what I've I've witnessed yeah well absolutely and 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 it's true when these things happen in public in presumably safe spots and and you're not expecting i mean there's certain areas where we we can avoid because there's a potential of risk but yeah you go out to a restaurant you go into a mall uh you you know you're going to school you you don't expect that there's going to be this violence so i do think it you're you're absolutely right it's it's putting a lot of um uh fear in advance of just normal routines that um people i you know, very sadly, I think people are starting to rationalize all of this so that they can live normal lives. Uh, and so I don't down the road, I'm not sure what how that's going to uh, impact everybody in terms of um, kind of just learning to rationalize violence in general, just so that they can, you know, wake up and and not be afraid to, to, to live a normal life. Well, and what about feelings of guilt? Uh, if if somebody witnesses something like this or is a bystander when something like this happens, is it possible to, to potentially feel a feeling of guilt if, if for example, they, they only watched and didn't intervene? Yeah, well, uh, well, absolutely. And that's uh, actually a lot of what I'm currently, I'm, I'm putting together a book right now. And um, so I have some survey results where I have actually asked people who have witnessed crime and those that didn't help, you know, sort of... Ha- what, how they felt about it and why I, I was starting to tap into their reasoning. And um, yeah, there are, there, there are people who will freeze up and for legitimate reasons, they don't want to get involved. And, you know, sort of that, that's a pretty classic um, type of study in criminology where we, we look at risks and why 
uh, people make the decisions they do. But you're absolutely right. Afterwards, especially if somebody dies and you had a potential of helping, that can leave a lot of lingering guilt. So uh, people will have to deal with that psychologically. And then, of course, there's survivor's guilt if you're in a mass situation where somebody nearby to you was the one who actually, um, you know, ended up getting hurt and you were lucky enough to not. So there, there is a lot of emotional baggage that comes from what we think of as just third party witnessing. They're not even directly involved with the crime, but just being, you know, part of an audience is having a lot of impacts that we really are just now tapping into. You mentioned the idea of rationalization, and I think it it happens. I know it happens in our community. We will hear where these crimes happen. And then, you know, if the address or the geographic area makes sense in our head where, you know, we sort of, quote unquote, associate that part of the city with crime, we rationalize it away a little bit. But what about those individuals that live in those communities where crime is at its highest? They don't even necessarily have to witness crime. Uh, They can hear the sirens. They can they can Mm -hmm. see the police tape in the morning. They may not even have seen, you know, that might be the extent to what they've seen. That, That has to have an impact as well, sociologically and psychologically. Yeah, absolutely. Living in a high crime neighborhood changes, I think, uh, uh, particularly for children. It just changes their psyche. But again, to to be a normal, rational human being, our brains adapt. And so what they have learned how to to, so you kind of ignore it. You minimalize the sirens. Oh, that was another gunshot. It, it actually it just becomes a normal part of their life, which, you know, is on one on one hand, that's a shame that they can normalize so much violence. But on the other hand, it's actually an, it's just a, a way of adapting. It, well, it's, it's a, a, you know, it's a defense mechanism survival. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, when you talk about the idea that, and I'm sorry to interrupt there, you might feel like that's just a way to to cope. There's a coping mechanism that comes with that. And then on the other side of things, you were talking about the survey you did for your new book, Karen, about taking a look at how witnesses reacted. And we've talked often in this community with with police, with security experts and others, you know, when they're shoplifters, you know, staff employees are told not to intervene. Uh, We had a high profile stabbing at a, a major mall a few weeks ago and talked about the idea that you'd like to think that if that was happening in front of you, you would step in and help those kids or step in and help whoever has been attacked. But I don't know if that's true for a lot of people because you also get told, stay back, call 911, like don't intervene. And so what did you learn in that survey about how, what percentage of people just watched what happened rather than tried to, to, to step in? Well, depending on the type of crime. So if we're just looking at violent crime, um, according to my survey, about half said that they and I broke it into reporting to police and actually directly intervening and, and then asked them why. There's there's certainly reasons you can't wait for the police to, to do something. So so um, mine is about half, which, which is interesting because I I, um, I kind of originated this survey because so much that we know out there is based on what somebody thinks they would do. So they'll read a vignette and here's what's going on and how would you react? And I think most of us think we'd be heroes. Of course, we'd step in. That's that's what that's what society tells us we should do. But it is interesting. You're right that there's a counter message that says, no, be safe, be smart, don't um, and wait for the police and, and do that. So there there's really no easy 
method, and, and there's a lot of calculations involved in what they do, but generally speaking, I have found that about half will do something that's, that I consider positive. Um, and, we, and, you know, in the digital age, we now have a lot of people who are choosing to record the crime, which has its own set of interesting um, consequences and outcomes, both good and bad. Uh, so actually, so my book is really kind of shifting into the sort of the digital responses that, um, you know, here we are, that people are just, it's a knee-jerk response now that you see something going on and you're going to get it on video, which again, it can be very helpful, uh, especially for identifying convictions, that kind of thing. But at the same time, it's 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 just kind of feeding into a voyeuristic perspective of crime that um, then allows hundreds and thousands of people online to to see the same type of violence. So I so I'm kind of trying to understand um, you know the benefits and the consequences of of where we've moved as a as digital witnesses. Karen Weiss, professor of Department of Sociology and Anthropology at West Virginia University. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate this. All right, thank you. Right now, we want to talk about how the Sleep Foundation say just over a quarter of adults, some 27%, take melatonin to help them sleep. Yeah, I've used it before in the past. It's it's a natural occurring element in your brain, and then it's been reproduced into pills. And so I like the natural idea of it. I've never given it to my kids before, but people do. There are kid-friendly versions of melatonin out there that might even come in gummies. And while it's a natural substance, there are a couple of things to consider about the dose, about the axis. Because the Manitoba Poison Center says it's actually seen an increase in the number of calls about melatonin and our children. So in 2018, it received about 22 calls about melatonin concerns. Last year, that jumped to 64. Margaret Thompson is the medical director of the Manitoba Poison Center and joins us now. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for taking the time to explain this, because as I said, I actually wasn't aware this could be given to kids. But let's start with that melatonin natural so it's okay in in the reduced doses to give regularly to children or how does it work um so melatonin as you said is a natural occurring substance in our brain and it doesn't actually induce sleep is my understanding but it helps regulate your um diurnal cycles so that it if it's you know evening time and your body starts to slow down it helps to enhance that so apparently, according to Health Canada, it is safe to give to children in reduced doses, but um, just even though it doesn't usually induce sleep in excessive amounts, in children especially, um, they have um, symptoms that are excessive sleepiness, difficult to rouse, and then that leads, leads to potentially you know, not being able to like wake them up, potentially, you know, aspiration, which is, you know, swallowing that stuff that's in the back of your throat into your lungs. Um, so those are things that we can, are concerned about when they get into the um, product that even if it's meant for them, um, they take too much of it. So we're seeing a dramatic increase in terms of calls to the poison center in the last five years that we have data for from 2016 to 2021, or pardon me, to 2022, uh, more than tripling uh, the number of calls from 19 in 2016 to 64 in 2022. What do we, what do we, uh, why is that? 
Well, I think maybe some of it is the preparations themselves. You know, if, if something that's in the form of a gummy is attractive to children, they think of it as being candy. And sometimes parents even um, speak to their children when they're giving them their medications and say, well, take your candy um, if there's some, some reluctance not to take the medication on the ch- part of the child. So that message is wrong in terms of, you know, inducing the child to then think, well, you know, mom's not here, that was tasty, um, and getting into packages that may not actually be child-resistant either. Um, So, you know, the child, the cap may be left off a container or the cap may not be child-resistant. It tastes good, it's induced, it's been advertised as being candy, so... Um, I think a lot of it is intentional on the part of the child, but not, you know, wanting to hurt themselves, but wanting to have more candy. How are they reacting? Like what happens inside their bodies when they take too much melatonin? It's always about the dose. So, you know, five tablets instead of one or five gummies instead of one will probably not cause significant effects. But larger amounts can lead these children to be very sleepy. Uh, parents unable to rouse them. Um, sometimes we worry about them not breathing well enough, and so they have to be watched in a hospital. So when you talk about having 64 calls last year, Margaret, does that mean that 64 people ended up having to get some medical care, or is it some of them might have had concerns, parents weren't sure if they were okay? Uh, the, was there a varying of symptoms? For sure there was. Um, and so we would rarely send um, children to hospital. We have a, an, a cutoff as to how many milligrams would be worrisome for a child under the age of five. And the number of 64 was based with children under the age of five um, who called the poison center asking for advice about what to do about their child. These were all exposure child, um, calls, but not all of them would have been severe enough to have had to be sent to hospital. But a concerned parent, we might recommend that they watch them overnight, so waking up overnight, setting an alarm to be able to check on their child. You know, it does bring morbidity associated with it, even if the child is not severely ill. It disrupts the sleep of the parent as well as that of the child. Um, And note that these are calls to the poison center Um, And poisonings are not reportable diseases. There's no obligation on the part of a parent or a caregiver to call if they recognize that their child has taken excessive amounts. They might just watch them on their own, or they might take them to hospital without calling us, or they might talk to their pharmacist. There may be some other interaction with healthcare as well. Because they're not reportable, this may just be the tip of the iceberg. So when you say they're not reportable, Margaret, does that mean if I take my child into, say, to Children's and there's this concern, there's no obligation, there's no rule that that, uh, the ER needs to report this to you if there's even a a suspected uh, situation here where it might be, quote unquote, an overdose of melatonin? Right. I mean, if the you know, caregiver, the healthcare provider is worried that there may be some child neglect involved. If it's it's a 15th time that child's been brought in for small overdoses or some, you know, child abuse, for sure that is reportable. But if it's just that, you know, the medication was left on the counter instead of being locked up and out of sight is what we usually recommend. Um, if it's a, if it's, you know, a benign situation. There's no obligation to report these incidents. 
Margaret Thompson is medical director of the Manitoba Poison Center. Thank you very much for joining us to discuss this. We appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. But right now we want to talk sports. Our question of the day on Friday morning, some are calling that night's game between the Blue Bombers and Tiger Cats a preview of the Great Cup final. What say you? 15% said Bombers will make it. Not sure about the Tiger Cats. 8% said yes, they will both be in the final. And 76% said slow down. It's the first game. Bombers did take care of business ultimately on Friday night at IG Field. And at the same time, Put the rest of the league on notice. This team is very good. So I would suggest those that uh, voted Bombers will make it. Not sure about the Thai Cats At this point, anyway, might be most correct. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't some, are you kidding me, moments in the game Friday night. As Cam Poitras said to me in the newsroom early this morning, perhaps a season's worth of, oh my God, uh, in that second half. Halfway through the third quarter, it's 32-4 to Winnipeg. Hamilton's offense has barely had a sniff of the Blue Bomber end zone. Cue an absolutely unimaginable turn of events. Real chance to put his foot right through one as Lawrence Woods stands at his own 48-yard line. Sheehan blocked, and it's into the end zone. It's a scramble for the ball, and the Ticats will have their first touchdown. That punt was blocked, and jumping on it was Omar Bayless, and the Ticats get the six very quickly. Mitchell on the corner road for Godwin up and behind Evan Holm, and it is a touchdown. First and 10 from the Hamilton 36. Oh, broken up and fumbled. It's on the ground, and Hamilton's got it. Stiff-arming. The defensive back is going to run to the end zone. My goodness, the intricate play design, and Chris Edwards scoops and scores. Kalaros, it looked like he had maybe a fake in front of him and then meant to hand it behind him, but whoever busted right at the middle broke that up, and it's a Hamilton touchdown. Down to our left, standing at his 18-yard line. Small's kick will drive Grant toward the sideline. On the run at the 23. 30. 35. Grant. Whack oh. ball. Fumble. And the Hamilton's going to score. Unless Les Maluo can catch the returner. Tackled down just inside the five-yard line. A desperation play by Johnny Augustine. Saves a touchdown. What is happening? Fraser Sopic had it land in his arms. So with another Blue Bomber touchdown in a mix, the game was eventually as close at one point as 39-31. Derek Taylor, the voice you just heard there, well, the voice of the Blue Bombers joins us now. Good morning, Derek. I still don't know what was going on <laughs> in that game. Oh, my gosh. I, before we get into, you know, just how great this and impressive and how dominant the Bombers were for most of the game, I do want to ask about what we just heard there. I think at one point that was Doug just going, oh, you don't normally hear him like that. And then you're asking what is happening. I mean, that that was really bonkers. Yeah, all the stuff that had happened even before that final one was Janarian Grant returning the opening, the kickoff after the, the touchdown. Kalaris fumbles, Chris Edwards takes it back for a touchdown, the ensuing kickoff. Jerry Grant fumbles it, and usually fumbles kind of hit the ground and there's a scrum, but that one pops straight up in the air. Uh, Fraser Sopic's like, yep, I'll take that, and it absolutely looked like he was going to score. James Butler would punch it in a play or two later, and this is, this is crazy because there was, there was nothing really from Hamilton that made you think they were in this game. Like, 
Their offense couldn't do much. Part the Bayless had the touchdown we heard there. Uh, they finally hit one of those deep balls. But the the defense, though the score was thirty one, and for, for Hamilton, the defense played tight. But weird, weird stuff. Blocked punt, fumbled by Kolaris, goes back for a touchdown in a game against Hamilton for the second consecutive game against Hamilton. And then the kickoff one, you're like, all right. I don't even know. But yeah, when, when Doug goes, whoa, you know, you know something's gone really bad. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I've heard that. It's been a while at least since I've heard that. So, yes, we can focus on some of the bizarre stuff, Derek. But let's just talk about Zach Kolaros and that offense. 9 of 11 passing for 189 yards. I mean, how on the other end, instead of just saying what was happening in that one quarter, were you were you in awe of how great Kolaros and the offense played? I know we know they're good, but that was pretty yeah. tremendous. Yeah, it, it absolutely was. I went into the season thinking this is going to be the best offense in the league. And I left the first quarter thinking, God, man, I'm smart. Woo! So smart. Like, because uh, all the things that were going wrong with the Hamilton offense couldn't hit the deep ball. Kalars and company have no problem with that. Uh, Nick Dembski, corner out, boom, touchdown. Like, hey, Rasheed Bailey, you left him alone. I'm going to find whoever's open. Whatever you do to me, I'm going to find whoever is open. And it's Bailey, and he's, of course, going to power his way into the end zone. Sure. Well, Tarski didn't have double digit touchdowns last season, but oh, he's he's open and the defender fell down. Uh, one of a couple times that same defender fell down and led to a big play. Let's do that too. Like it, it was, it was impressive. And you know, uh, by the end of the game, when they just salt the game away, then the running game really kicks in. But yeah, it, it's it went kind of like I thought it could. Not necessarily like I thought it would, but like I thought it could in game for one. So, Derek, uh, this whole idea of the run setting up the pass, and we've had this conversation on the podcast. You had it in the pregame show, and I think during the game on Friday night, that was a prime example of the pass setting up the run for Brady Oliveira. Barely touched the ball in the first quarter. Yeah, 100%. And that's, I mean, that's just how the game goes when you throw two-thirds of the time. Right, and that's where the big plays come from. It's where Hamilton's big plays came from as well. There, they paid all the money for James Butler, and and he wasn't able to get off much, you know, because you now got to start throwing the ball. It's yeah, it's just it's just how it how it kind of works. You saw it in I think virtually every game this week in the CFL. And man, isn't the games you know it's pretty exciting when uh, when guys just need you know two feet of space and Kalaris can drop the ball on them. It's such a great way to attack and a real blessing. It's the advantage that the Bombers have over all uh, the other nine teams in the CFL is Kolaris and his passing offense can just cut you apart in a second. Talking sports with Derek Taylor. We want to switch gears from football to golf, Derek, because yesterday (laughs) something special happened in Toronto at Oakdale uh, Golf and Country Club with uh, Winnipeg-born Nick Taylor. We know he grew up in Abbotsford, but we are claiming him for today because he was born in Winnipeg. The story going into the final round was will Rory McIlroy, one of the most popular players in the game, win his third straight Canadian Open? Uh, but it turns out Nick Taylor was the one uh, putting up the drama. He and Englishman Tommy Fleetwood go to a they go to four holes in a sudden death playoff, and this is how it ended. Left the flag stick in. Maple Leaf flag. Good pace. Are you serious? Oh my goodness! Glorious and free! 
So that putt was from 72 feet down the hill, and just uh, we, we were thinking he's got to get a, he's got to get at least a two putt just to give himself a chance. But he drops it for an eagle, and Jim Nance went on to call it one of the greatest moments in Canadian sports history. So we're wondering what what's your take on that? I think that's. I mean, it, it may well be. Uh, I don't know if we think of the Canadian Open the same way someone would think of the uh, the British Open or the U.S. Open or like the Aussie Open in tennis, right? But, but uh, it is our national golf tournament, right? It's the one that, that our guys get extra chances to be in because they are Canadian. And, I mean, when do you ever see a 72-foot putt hit, much less one, one of the fourth playoff hole to, to, for Eagle and to win a tournament? Like, that's, it is incredible. Um, there, there are many more. But for, for Nance, that's... That's a perfectly reasonable call. We could sit here and probably come up with 20 that are better, but you just, you never see the putt. You heard Nance there say, oh, good pace, because that's really what you're hoping for is something that gets close to the hole and you can get it in on the second putt. Nick Taylor just drains it from 72. Uh, that's, that's an unbelievable, unbelievable highlight that we're going to know. We're going to see many, many more times by the end of the year. Indeed, it was the longest putt of his career, and it's the first time a Canadian's won the tournament in 69 years, so to win it like that I, I thought was dramatic. And indeed, not a podium finish for greatest Canadian moments in sports, but I think you know if you're doing like a top 100 or top 200, I would have no problem with seeing that play on that list. But also, there was this. We're storming the 18th green now. They just tackled Adam Hadwin, by the way, who was trying to approach his friend. Security did, not knowing that's exactly who it was. But Canada has a conquering hero. So what happens is he's Adam Hadwin, fellow Canadian golfer. He's got a bottle of champagne, and it's spraying all over the place. And some security guard dekes around two other people to just spear Adam Hadwin takes him down. Uh, he's okay, and apparently he even apologized to the security guard. But uh, what, of course, <laughs> very Canadian of him. <laughs> but that's a pretty good tackle on Hadwin. Maybe the Canadian Football League should be trying to get the security guard on their roster, right? Or the WWE? Like that was that was impressive. I don't know where the security guard kind of goes back over it in his mind, and, and maybe he thinks. Where did this guy get a giant bottle of champagne? Exactly. Like somebody important. <laughs> like, just randos like me don't get to bring a bottle of champagne <laughs> to this golf tournament, right? But, hey, uh, uh, hey, it default to taking care of the athletes. Because if that isn't crazy, it could be really it could be really bad. But, yeah, the champagne should probably be the key. That's I, I feel like if I'm walking somewhere, if I'm walking in the office and someone is hosing off everybody with champagne, they're probably a big wig with the company, so I'm going to let them do that. I had one from Saskatchewan, so it hurts less for me. Uh, 847, <laughs> it's, the, it's the start, but tonight, of course, it's the Kosha Show. Derek Taylor and uh, Mike O'Shea, 7 till 8. Lots of talk about what happened this Friday and looking ahead to Saskatchewan this Friday night. Derek Taylor, we'll uh, catch up with you soon. Thanks for this. Thanks, gang. Derek Taylor, the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, joining us live on 680 CJOB. And as far as that taco goes, I was—I can't remember the, the name of the player tweeting it, but saying, just so you know, uh, one of the nicest guys in professional golf getting tackled on the green 
with a bottle of champagne while trying to congratulate his fellow <laughs> countrymen for an amazing achievement is about the 73rd most random thing that's happened in our sport this week. <laughs> no, no kidding. And there's even a close-up. Apparently, Hadwin had the presence of mind to put his thumb over the top of the champagne bottle so he didn't spill it. <laughs> He's thrifty and polite. I love it all. boy, That is Canadian saving right there. Right now, we want to return to a conversation we started at 7.05 when we spoke with one of our loyal listeners about the question he had about credit cards and the information that is shared. He lost his card a few weeks ago. I ordered a new one, and... Um Prior to me getting it in the mail, um, it was June the 4th, I went on the Amazon website to order something else. And in the method of payment uh, section, a new credit card appeared. It had my name and it had four, uh, the last four numbers were different, um, but I had never seen it before. Then the next day, I actually got my new credit card in the mail. And um, it was that same credit card that was on the Amazon website. So Amazon had my credit card number before I did. So that was Larry Wee. But he says, yeah, he still had to go and enter his three-digit security code and then the expiry date. But he wasn't too happy to see that sites like Amazon already had access to some of his credit card information. And had that had us asking our own questions. Ritesh Kotak is a cybersecurity expert and a regular contributor here at CJOB. And we say good morning. How's it going, Ritesh? Good morning. It's going well. So this is normal, allowed? Walk me through what ha- what what's the scenario here. Yeah, this one is kind of perplexing because I haven't seen something like this before. Um, usually when you get a new credit card, so it seems like this individual had a new credit card issued altogether, meaning a new credit card number. Because usually if you request for a replacement or your card expires, you do end up getting the same credit card number. It it would just be a different expiry date and a different CVV code, which is the three or four digit code on the back. But I don't know how this could have happened because everything that I've read, everything that I've done, I've lost my credit card previously as well and needed it replaced. I've never seen a situation where the information was preloaded into um, a site uh, such as uh, Amazon before. So it's just, I'm perplexed here. We had uh, a listener uh, text in uh, about the technology, something called API, and this whole idea of of certain vendors having this proprietary uh, information and connected to your account. But one of our listeners here, and, and you know what? Let, let's let's take that one at a time, Ritesh. Uh, how, what's your understanding of API and how it works? Could this be part of that relationship that third party vendors have with with banks? It should not be. Um, They're supposed to be completely separate. Just think of it as reoccurring payments. Um, It's a big pain when you get a new credit card. You got to put in the reoccurring, uh, your credit card for reoccurring payments. Otherwise, they don't go through. And that is done by design. Uh, It is a fraud prevention uh, method. So that should not be the case. And now with respect to the APIs, the only real, the only thing I can think of, which doesn't even answer this question, is that Maybe the information was used once and stored on a browser. And once it's stored on a browser and you go to a, and you go to a site such as Amazon or Uber or whatever, um, it will ask you if you want to update the payment information or use the payment information stored on the browser. And you still got to enter the CVV code. But no, banks should not be sharing your credit card information 
with any vendor, period. So our listener, Scott, says, so what if his Amazon, in this case, Larry's Amazon account, was hacked instead of him misplacing his card? It would have given the hacker a second chance to scam. Well, lo and behold, we have a text here from one of our listeners who says, just heard your chat with the fellow regarding his credit card. I had a similar and more troubling issue late last year. I believe he stated that he had a replacement card for losing his uh, used before he even received it. In my case, my card was fraudulently used for a number of charges shortly after spending six weeks in the U.S., I called RBC and the person I spoke with immediately canceled that card and would have a new one sent to me. Before I even got the new card, fraudulent charges showed up on it. Yeah, so there's there could be a couple reasons for that. Um, and sometimes a low-tech, uh, it might just be a low-tech answer. Um, I've seen situations where literally people have stolen mail and gotten, and gotten credit cards. It could be as simple as that. But the fact that is it possible that the the bank the bank had some sort of relationship with a third party vendor or there was some sort of there was some sort of hack or or some sort of insider intrusion anything is possible but it's highly unlikely sometimes a lot of these high tech crimes have really low tech methods of being perpetrated and it might be as simple as a theft theft of mail that was then reported via let's say Canada Canada Post to um, to particular vendors saying, um, yeah, we've had a theft of you know this mailbox or or something as simple as that, um, which would have caused credit card information to potentially be leaked. Uh, it could be a breach. It could. There's a whole array of factors, but this should not be happening. In fact, there's actually a standard in the industry. It's called PCI. It stands for Payment Card Industry um, Standards. And in order for a vendor to even collect your in uh, collector information, they must be PCI compliant. That is, if you're using those popular e-commerce sites, which means you can't store C, uh, your partic- uh, particular CVV codes. Um, the information must be encrypted. There's checks and balances in place. So it makes these types of scenarios unlikely, but not impossible. Before we let you go, then Ritesh, it sounds like Loren wanted to jump in there. So go ahead, Loren. No, I just wondered, is there is there some credit cards? So some of our listeners are saying that it's actually an opting out agreement. Like you have to go into your, you know, when you sign on for that credit card, you have to say that you want to opt out of automatically having that card update with vendors where you might have reoccurring payments. Is, is it possible that that's part of the fine print that maybe we we don't see or ignore? So I think I think we would need to go through go through the uh, all the all the fine print, which is uh, in size eight font. Um, there might be another there might be another answer to this as well, and that is if the credit card that was issued belonged to a particular um, particular vendor. So I know in the U.S. you got Apple cards. I believe Amazon might have their own uh, credit card as well. So that might be a possibility that it automatically updates um, your particular your particular account information with the, le- with the latest credit card information. However, um, in general, this, this one, I, like I've tried, I've contacted my, my bank. I looked at the information that was available online. I'm going through my own personal experience, and this should not be happening. And if it is, um, this is extremely problematic. Ritesh Kotak, cybersecurity expert, joining us live on 680 CJ will be a regular contributor to our radio station. Thank you very much, Ritesh. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Not wishing the week away at all, Brett. <laughs>
<laughs> I know. I, I was already hitting the wall at eight o'clock. Thinking, Forgive me. It's, too, it's only Monday. Like I can't be <laughs> looking forward to taking a Friday nap already. Oh my! Well, it is possible. Yeah. Yes, you can. It's hard. Money's hard. It was gorgeous out this weekend. You just want more of it. You know, it's the time of year become, you want like an eight day weekend. Oh, I bet you I was outside 16 hours this weekend. Yes. Yeah. You just oh, want it. Yep. Like just about every minute of yesterday until about six o'clock. I bet you I was outside from 830 till six o'clock. You guys yeah. almost lost me at 815 because I'm working from home this morning. I have a kid to get to an appointment and I went out, wandered outside during our, one of our news meetings and I f- forgot to come back in. Like I just, <laughs> and I was racy. I was like, oh my God, it's like 8.35. You got to get in there. But I was outside. You just get lost in it, man. <laughs> well, right now we've got tickets to give away to see the Winnipeg Sea Bears take on the Saskatchewan Rattlers on June 23rd. And we're asking you about Reunion parties. I attended one on Saturday. It was the 25th anniversary of when we all started at a job at a call center. And I can't believe it's been 25 years, but a lot of them have stayed in touch. And and a few of them in particular have been great at organizing. So, Kirsten, thank you for uh, organizing once again, because I think the 20th reunion was at her place as well. So great job. And uh, but uh, it was great to see everybody. But I, I found myself just totally overwhelmed. It was like sensory anxiety overload. And I don't know why. I mean, it's certainly not a criticism of anybody there. I think it was just like all these faces I hadn't seen in so long, all at once, just bang, and my brain exploded. But Auntie Didi, shout out to Auntie Didi and everybody at Winnipeg's Vincent Massey Collegiate. This was the 60th, 60th anniversary reunion for the whole school. I knew a few Vincent Massey grads back in the day. Uh, there's a certain someone that better not have been in town this weekend for that. Oh, really? <laughs> for that reunion, because I did not hear from that person that lives elsewhere now, okay. sending a text message during sports. And Dante Didi says graduating class of 1979. So their class had private get-togethers Thursday and Friday. Nice. And then I guess the big, big, big event cool. for everybody was Saturday. So that's cool to bring everybody from the school back. Yeah, Daniel Max, I think his next year was the 100th for DMC oh, next year. Daniel Mack. But uh, we're going with Reese as our Re- winner. Reese says, I was born and raised in Wales, moved to Canada in 2003, and left all my friends. Moved here, didn't talk to them really as life just got in the way. Booked a trip back to Europe in 2016. So that was 13 years later. I was no- so nervous to get together with them just in case we weren't friends anymore. But it was a hit. It was just like I left yesterday. Nothing changed. We were just as good as friends now as when I left. It was great. That's a risky one. I'm going to go back to you. going to spend all this money to go back to Europe. What if they don't even like me? What if they don't even want to see me? Oh, you. You made it, did you? Hey. Hey. Traitor. Good to see you again. No, that's great, Reese. Go back to Canada again. <laughs> <laughs> well, but now that you're back in Canada, Reese, you can enjoy the Sea Bears on June 23rd.